Hello friends, welcome to Running and Fitness with Raj. This show will bring you exciting and interesting guests and give you specific and actionable advice on your running, fitness and general health. Our guest today is a world-renowned scientist, teacher and author Dr. Tim Noakes. Dr. Noakes holds multiple degrees including an MD and his contribution to health and fitness and running is too varied and numerous to recount fully here. But let me just touch upon a few highlights. Uh, Dr. Noakes was the first scientist to po- point out the serious danger that runners can encounter by consuming too much water. Yes, you heard me right, too much water. He was instrumental in developing the central governor theory, which explains the overwhelming influence of brain on muscle as we fatigue and how it affects our endurance performance. On diet, he strongly believes in the efficacy of low-carb, high-fat or LCHF diet. He has authored a number of books, uh, and just to name a few, The Lore of Running, which is one of the most influential running books in history, Waterlogged, The Serious Problem of Overhydration in Endurance Sports, The Real Meal Revolution, and then The Lore of Nutrition. These are just a small sample of the number of books that he has published. He has published, in addition, close to 1,000 scientific articles and has also been cited literally tens of thousands of times. So Dr. Noakes is, in addition, very highly passionate about his work, does not shy away from conflict with his fellow scientists in terms of his viewpoints, if they are challenged without any basis. And I cannot overstate how happy we are ha- we are to have him on the podcast. So welcome to the show, Dr. Noakes. Well, thank you, Raj. It's lovely to be with you and to share the next hour chatting about these things, which are so important to me, and I'm glad that they're also important to you and to your listeners. So, Dr. Nooks, uh, you have a reputation of being an iconoclast. You are not afraid of challenging the prevailing scientific dogmas, and uh, you, you know, you have an insatiable curiosity which you have di- displayed over multiple decades about various aspects of health, fitness, running, endurance sports. So. How did your personality develop, both in terms of your character as an individual, as well as uh, your scientific pursuits, and uh, who were your early influencers in your life and career? You know, that's the first time I've been asked that question. So (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not sure I'm going to get it right first time, because that's that's a really interesting question. So at school, I was pretty ordinary, you know, I didn't... Achieve anything particularly powerful, and I know that you're from Mumbai and you love cricket, and I wanted to be a cricketer, but I didn't have yes, the yes, I'm I'm aware of that. Yes, <laughs> I didn't have the mental approach. I didn't know understand getting in the zone because when I got in the zone, I was very good, but I only did that a few times, and I didn't understand it. I was generally too neurotic and scared, and so on. So that so fortunately, I then went to university. Sorry, I went first to the to the, to the military in South Africa. We had okay. to do our military training. And then I went to America for a year. And I think that was very pivotal to me because I came from this apartheid country and then suddenly to be exposed to an open world was, was quite remarkable. And how young were you? 17, 18 at that yeah, time? Yeah, I was 17, just okay. about 18 then. And surprisingly... Uh, one of my great friends in America, he said to me, I asked him, what sport are you going to play when you go to university on the last day of school? And he said, I'm going to do rowing, crew. Okay. And I thought, you that's really interesting. You know, that's something I'd never thought about. So when I came to Cape Town and university a few months later, I signed up for rowing. And 
what I discovered, then we were forced to run, and I was not a runner. I didn't like running at school. Very much didn't like it because it was cricket and rugby. Those were the sports that you played. Okay. So one day I went out running because we couldn't row, and I ran for about 40 minutes, which was longer than usual, and I just I got this high, this mental high, and then I said, this is it. <laughs> I've got okay. to run. So I carried on rowing, and a lot of the, the the understanding of physiology came from that, and also understanding the role of the brain in, because rowing is really interesting because you you got to go flat out from the word go. Every stroke is a hundred percent, and it's yep. but you how do you do that for two thousand meters? Well, you don't, but but you have to try. And so I learned a lot about the mind, and then I started running and just loved it and. Then wrote, started writing and wrote Law of Running. And this is, I think this will be interesting to you. There was a book called The Complete Book of Running, okay. which was written by James Fix in 1977. Okay. And I had been asked to write on running because I was the only sort of doctor in South Africa who was running regularly. And my great friend said, Tim, why don't you contribute to my magazine? So I did. And then I started writing for magazines. And when I read Jim Fix's book, I said, this isn't the complete book. And I wrote to him, and I still have the letter he wrote back. You know, it was astonishing. I have a little museum with all these things, and there's his book, and I've put this, the letter from James Fix. And, and he said, Dr. Noakes, thank you so much for writing, etc. and I really appreciate your comments, and I'll certainly make sure I correct the next book. You see. <laughs> <laughs> and this book sold. Well over a million copies, hardcover. So, I mean, it's the, it's the biggest selling running book in history. And there I was telling the author, you're not very good. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just that it was called the complete book, but it was anything but complete from what yeah, you are telling right. us. Yeah, yeah. So then because I was writing these columns, eventually I put them all together and I thought, well, now I've definitely got a book. And uh, when I went through that, I thought, actually, now I haven't. And then I started writing and that was eventually came up with Law of Running in 1985. And at the time, I was also fortunate to be just starting sports science and teaching it and doing research. And I was very fortunate because I came at a time when you could be an expert in all areas of sports science. Today, it's so not fragmented, but it's so disciplined. There are so many different disciplines. It's not possible to know it all. That was the first thing. But secondly, I came in in an era when sports science was just starting the sort of modern okay. sports sciences. So I was able to be right in there at the, on the ground floor. And in 1976, I just started my research at the University of Cape Town, and I was studying heart disease in marathon runners, which was interesting. And, of course, James Fix died of a heart attack when he was running, and, but that oh, okay. would happen later. And my professor had written an article saying that we know that marathon runners die of heart attacks. And there was this. Okay. A, there was a theory at the time, the Basler hypothesis, that if you completed a marathon, you'd never have a heart attack. And this, of course, was great because oh, okay. running is just starting, and everyone thinks that it's going to be like that forever. And we found that they weren't. And he wrote an article in the New England Journal of Medicine, a letter, and then he was tackled. They said, "No, no, no. Where's the data? Where's the heart showing coronary artery disease?" So I spent three years finding that patient. And because I was interested, the, the New York City Marathon, the first one was held in 1976, and they had a conference. And at that conference, every single world authority was at present. And I mean, this is the first meeting I ever go to. And my boss, Professor Opie, says, when you go to that meeting, you take your slides, 
and you go to the person organizing and you say, you must let me speak because I'm going to argue against what Dr. Basler said and Dr. Basler has got the right to speak. And so we should be able to to counter what he said. So the, so the guy said, but, but who are you? And I said, well, I'm Professor <laughs> Opie's. <laughs> I'm Professor Opie's student. Oh, Professor Opie, yes, no, of course, then you can speak. <laughs> so they put me on in the tea break. It was funny and it was astonishing. And here I was, this youngster, speaking in front of these world authorities. And uh, that kind of got me going. And, and after the talk, I must say, there were a lot of unhappy people because they of course. Of you're course. going to destroy running. <laughs> so, so I think that I, 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 what, what always interests me was the paradoxes where someone would say something and then you see the opposite and you knew that couldn't be true because you'd seen the opposite happening. And that was what I focused on. And, and I very soon... I soon realized that's the way you go. If, if you've got a belief, but something disproves it, it does take one case. That's all it takes. And that's how we worked on the waterlogged story. That was one patient who collapsed in the Comrades Marathon, which is our 56-mile race. Yes. And, and, of course, everyone said, well, she's dehydrated, and that's how she was treated. And her husband was with her, and he said, but you're treating her for dehydration. She's getting worse. And then she was complete, deeply unconscious. And so he said, no, I'm taking you out of this. Scent. You don't know what you guys are doing. And he took her to a hospital where she fortunately saw a friend of mine, a colleague, who said, you know, I don't know what this is, but let's go for first principles. And he went through first principles, and then he was able to save her life. Whereas if he'd been a doctor trained in sports medicine at the time, he would have said, well, she's obviously dehydrated, and she's getting worse. We must give her more fluid. And, of course, the fluid was, was killing her. So, and then I wrote that paper up, that case up with a couple more I found. And then that proved to me pretty certainly that you could drink too much. And then that, that led to other things. And we published papers and people said, very helpfully, people said, yeah, but you haven't got the definitive, definitive experiment. But I said, but we can't study 15,000 runners at the start for two people who are going to collapse at the end. So then I realized, oh, they don't have to do that. All you have to do is get the people who are sick at the end and study them as they recover. So you've got them when they're sick, and then you've got them when they're healthy, and what's the difference? And we showed very clearly that the difference was that they excreted this enormous amount of fluid. Some, some of them were six liters overhydrated. I mean, that's, it's unbelievable. I, I was in the so just, 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 just take. Let's take a step back, and just for the uh, purpose of um, you know listeners, uh, you know, let's just explain to them, uh, or rather, you please explain to them this whole concept of hyponatremia. That is what you are talking about, which is yeah. you take too much of water, your sodium levels go down in your blood, and that causes all sorts of complications, serious complications, including fatalities, I mean, which, which you have observed, right? So that, so just, just uh, take us through what is happening with your body at that point in time. So when I started in the sports sciences, um, the, the sports drink industry, and now let me go further back. One of the, two of the best scientists in South Africa were involved in heat stroke research in the, in the, Mines because the, as the mines get deeper, they get hotter and hotter. And, and, the future, and the future of South Africa was dependent on them solving that problem, because if you couldn't mine deep, you couldn't get to the gold. And this deep, this this is four kilometers underground. And yep. by the way, the reason it's four kilometers underground is because a meteorite struck this area 
<laughs> some years, I mean, millions of years ago, and drove the gold down to the bottom. If the meteorite hadn't done that, the gold would have come to the surface and got washed away. Okay. So Africa is, exists because that meteorite struck. And they only realized that the meteorite had struck about 15 years ago when they discovered all this whole story. Anyway, so because you had to go deeper and deeper and deeper to get the gold, it got hotter and hotter. And they were working at 50 degrees centigrade, and they had to cool it and so on. And heat stroke was a major problem. And these two guys solved the problem with other people. And then they decided to switch because they started doing a bit of sports science. And they, they studied some marathon runners in a race, and they found that the people who drank the least and were most dehydrated, dehydrated had the highest body temperatures. So they said, there you are. If you become dehydrated, your body temperature goes up. And if it goes to more than 4 or 5%, you're going to die of heat stroke. And that was just what the sports drink industry wanted. They just wanted this. And so then they started using that in the guidelines to drinking. You have to prevent dehydration. And ultimately, in 1996, the guidelines came out from the American College of Sports Medicine, which was funded by Pepsi-Cola and Gatorade. <laughs> <laughs> That you had to drink the moment you started exercise and you mustn't allow yourself to become dehydrated. And the reason they did that was because they wanted people going to gyms to drink a lot because that's the market. Marathon runners is not the market. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's the, the market is that. So when you see people running on the road, they've got their, they're going out for a 5K jog and they've got their bottle of water. That's how successful they were. So when I started writing, you could only drink, your first drink in a marathon was at 20 miles, 32 kilometers. Okay. That's part of the ruling. And so I started running. I said, this is ridiculous. You know, you've got to give more fluids. And so eventually, not just me, but everyone else. And by 1976, the rules had changed and you could start drinking more frequently. By 1981, which was when I first saw this lady who had the problem, in the Comrades Marathon, which is 90 kilometers or 56 miles, there was a feeding station every mile. Oh, okay. 56 miles so that you, you ran a mile and there was a drink already and you hadn't even warmed up. And that, so that was the classic uh, environmental factors that you needed for over-drinking. And so, we, so the message was drink as much as you can. And so people did that. And then they got into real trouble. So what happens when you overdrink is for most people, it's not a problem. They just pass urine. They pass it out as urine. And so that they will soon learn, you know, I'm passing so much urine today. Maybe I don't need to drink so much. And they stop drinking and they're fine. But for some people who secrete their hormone, antidiuretic hormone abnormally, as they're becoming dehydrated, sorry, as they're becoming overhydrated, they're overdrinking, they should be switching off this hormone. And it should be allowing them to pass the excess, but they don't switch off the hormone. And the hormone... This continues to circulate, and it's the most powerful hormone in the body. A, little, a trillionth of a gram is enough to stop all renal function. You will pa not pass urine. So these okay. people, these people pass this hormone, and they're not passing urine. So they think I'm under drinking. So they continue to drink heavily, and then eventually, the as you said, the sodium in the bloodstream drops. That changes the osmotic, osmotic pressure, and the water then shifts from inside the bloodstream into the cells, and particularly in the brain. And because we've got a, a solid skull, the brain can't swell. And so it starts to swell, and ultimately the pressure rises. And when that happens, the blood pressure, the blood flow is reduced, and you lose consciousness. And ultimately, the brain can 
percolate below in, through the spinal cord and the, that kills you. So okay. you die because your brain has what we call herniated. Part of the brain herniates and that prevents the, puts pressure on the respiratory center and you stop breathing. And so that's, that's a typical death with this condition. And the, the treatment we didn't know then was that you must give these people very high, uh, salt, sorry, very high salt solutions in the blood via the venous, by the bloodstream. And if you give them three to five percent sodium, which is way higher than the normal concentration in the blood, normal concentration is about 0.9 percent. So you give five times the concentration, and the kidneys see this massive er er amount of sodium coming, and they just let the sodium out because they can't retain it. And that sodium moves out and takes the water out, and that then and then that saves the person. And you can reverse this condition within three or four hours. Uh, we've okay. seen miracles. People. You know, unconscious, semi-conscious, and within twenty minutes, they they're fully conscious again. Okay. So, so, so the message clearly is 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 what Doctor Noakes that uh, if you stick to drinking to thirst, you should by and large be okay in an endurance event. Is that is that a good guideline? Yeah, it is. You know, the the there's been a lot of st studies trying to disprove that, and they've never really shown that drinking ahead of thirst makes you perform better. Okay. And, and certainly drinking a lot ahead of thirst is not going to help you. But the, the, if, I, I don't believe that anyone has disproved that advice. That advice seems to be the best. And, of course, runners did that right through till the 1990s. So that's how they ran. And, and people set world records. And we studied Haile Gebri Selassie, not me, but my colleagues in, in Britain, studied Haile Gebri Selassie when he set the world record. And he lost 5% of his body weight. He looked. So he lost 10%. He lost five kilograms. Okay. And, and he still set the world record. So he was 10% dehydrated. He didn't die of heat stroke. He simply set the world record. And not having to carry that extra five kilograms made him go a bit faster towards the end. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so so moving moving forward, and you touched upon it in, in when you gave the uh, when you gave the example of your rowing days, uh, is the is the central governor theory. So can you in simple terms uh, first, explain to the listeners what is the central governor theory and uh, why is it extremely important for endurance athletes to understand it? Yeah, so, so thank you. When I started in the sports sciences, it was simple. It's called lactic acid causes fatigue. So everyone knew that lactic acid rises when you do high-intensity exercise and it stops the muscle contracting and you get tired and you stop. And that was the prevailing view, which had been around since 1923. And then when I went and looked at the original data, you found that it really didn't support that hypothesis, that the evidence that lactic acid caused fatigue was from frog muscle, stimulated frog muscle, which, okay. which, they, which was didn't even have a blood supply. But then they said so they'd stimulate this muscle and the lactic acid would go up and, of course, the muscle would get tired. Well, of course, it'll get tired because it's got no blood supply. So, okay. so but that kind of... Didn't, didn't matter. That was forgotten. So what, what inspired me was that we were told in the traditional physiology that if we put an athlete on a treadmill and make them run faster and faster and faster, the oxygen consumption is meant to go up like this, and then they run a bit faster, but they can't take up, take up any more oxygen, and that's called the plateau phenomenon. And that was a guiding principle in exercise physiology. Every athlete must have a plateau phenomenon and when they achieve that, then they've got they they've run out of oxygen. 
So, so we started, and we didn't have this fancy equipment, and we had to make our own equipment and adapt it and so on. And we, we were using basic stuff and basic calculations, and, and we could never see this thing. We couldn't okay. see this plateau. So that made me think. And so I wrote, in 1987, I gave an editorial, a, a lecture at the American College of Sports Medicine, and I said, I don't think it's oxygen that's the problem. There's something else going on. I don't know what it is, but it's not oxygen. And, and then in 1996, I was asked to give the, the premier lecture there, the J.B. Wolf lecture. And because I was a generalist, I'm not an expert in any particular area, I, I said, these are the five areas in exercise physiology that I disagree with. The data don't support the hypothesis. And this was the one. And so anyway, I wrote it up, and not everyone writes up that lecture, and it was published. And when it was published, it came with a, a rebuttal. Now, this has never happened before, that there okay. was a rebuttal to this famous lecture. And it was so funny because I first heard about the rebuttal. I was in Finland, and I was about to give a lecture, and my mate, he said, Tim, you might want to read this before you go to the lecture. And I mean, literally, I was standing up, and there was this article criticizing everything I'd said, you see, okay. about oxygen theory. I said, no, no, I'll address that later. <laughs> but he did it specifically with real Finnish humor that he was going to put me off my stride because I was about to get up there and talk probably about the governor theory. And he said, someone doesn't agree with you. You better know about it. Anyway, so I then went back. I'd looked at his criticisms and I went back and I read A.V. Hill again. And Hill was the lactate theory, the oxygen anaerobic theory. And Hill said, he said that when the oxygen supply to the heart muscle runs out, he was specifically looking at the heart muscle, the brain or the heart reduces its output, the heart's output. Either the heart does it or the brain does it. And then that makes you tired because now the muscles have become anaerobic and so you stop. So he realized that the ultimate problem in exercise is if you do, do reach this limit of oxygen transport, the heart will be damaged. And he said there has to be a governor to prevent it. And he put the governor in the heart itself. And I said, no, no, I knew enough to know that that's where, not where you'd put the governor. You'd put the governor in the brain because the brain recruits the muscles and the muscles drive the oxygen requirement. So as soon as you got into trouble, the way to do it would be get to the brain, reduce the muscle use. So then I came up with the central governor theory and described at length and said, this is what I think is happening. And subsequently found lots of evidence to support it. And, and, but there is a simple experiment that, that proves you're right. And that is that if we ask you to exercise to exhaustion and we see how much muscle you're actually using, it's only ever about 50 or 60% of the total okay. muscle in your lower limbs. So that tells you that the body hasn't used all its muscles. It's stopped short of that. And the only way it can stop short of that is if the, if the brain tells it to. So, okay. so. So we pretty much proved that very from a simple experiment, and that's the beauty of, of, of the science, is that there are one or two experiments you can do which, which prove your, your hypothesis. That doesn't mean to say we've got the final solution yet, but at least we now can talk to people and say, listen, when you get tired, it's an emotion. It's purely an emotion. The brain's trying to protect you. Don't listen to that emotion. You don't have to listen to it. You've got to think otherwise. And, and more recently, what we've done is we've shown that when you get tired, you get these emotional changes. 
And those emotional changes are critical to your impaired performance. And then you get the stopping wish. So you start arguing with yourself, you know, is it worth running another five kilometers? I'm feeling so terrible. My time today is poor. Should I finish this race in second place? And the guy okay. who asks the questions is done because the winner never asked that question. He, Elliot Kipchoge, I can promise you, <laughs> never goes into a marathon and reaches 35 kilometers saying, you know, I don't know if it's worth it pushing it for another six kilometers. He, he never asked that question. That's left for the rest of us to ask. Okay. So this, is, this means that uh, you train your, uh, train your brain uh, in training, that is, and tr try to override what the brain is uh, trying to tell you. And you manage your internal dialogue. And, and that's how you overcome 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 this fatigue or the perception of uh, perception of uh, uh, fatigue because as you said your muscles are nowhere near being fully utilized i mean 50 60 percent means there is enough 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 leeway there for more muscles to be recruited and uh, and and for you to continue and for you to continue so so let me just ask you one related question if if that is what is happening is the central governor theory then applicable in other facets of life like your personal life or your professional life where often we you know where our mind rules and we sometimes make uh, suboptimal decisions oh yeah absolutely uh, for example the chronic fatigue syndrome is clearly in medicine, it's clearly brain-related. And, and it, it doesn't mean it's in your mind that it's psychological. There probably are physiological changes and chemical, biochemical changes that explain it. But it's in the brain, and, and, and that, that's the reality. It's not because your legs have got too little oxygen or whatever. So that, I think, is very helpful. And I think certain viruses probably interact in the brain and, and make you chronically fatigued. And helping people tell them that may be helpful. But I think in, in every discipline of life, you know, we talk ourselves out of it. You, that, that's the key. Is I've, I've since learned, you know, self-belief is so critical. If you don't believe, you can do it. You know, when Elliot Kipchoge first ran that Monza marathon, yep. I, I was asked how fast he can run. I said he's going to do two hours and 30 seconds. And I said, <laughs> he ran two hours 25, <laughs> right? And I said, because it, the jump is too big. It, great athlete that he is, it's too big to jump. It's three minutes. No, no human being can do that, I don't believe, under those circumstances. And it was right because he hadn't grown up believing he had to run a two-hour marathon. He just had to run a two-three. And then, then that was what he was focused on. And now he's changed his training and he's training harder, but no, I don't believe you can change the belief for three minutes. But by the time he got to the more recent race in, in Vienna, I think it was, you know, by then he believed he could do it because he, he knew that the, the support he was getting was much better and it was going to be a bit easier for him. And so the belief was there and then he could do no, it. And, and in between Monza, which happened in, uh, in 2018 in May and the Berlin Marathon in 2019, he, he actually in the Berlin Marathon reduced the marathon world record to two hours one minute and and 40 and 39 seconds which which was if i remember correctly almost a 78 second reduction from the from the previous world record which is in you know at at, at that level it, it is unheard of that i mean people literally shave a few seconds 78 seconds was unheard of right i mean uh, like at least in the in the last decade or last 20 years uh so yeah yeah so that that would be in his belief system and 
that that was the big change. And that's probably a better performance than the one he set up in, in Vienna. Was it in Vienna? Yeah. Because that performance without support is unbelievable. Yeah. The, yeah. Having the guys around him made a big difference in the, the Vienna Marathon. That, his time under two hours was not as good as a 201 without support. Yeah. Okay. So now let's uh, switch to another another topic, which is something you have more recently uh, written, written about, uh, which is your, you had certain personal experiences leading to this, which is the low carb, high fat diet. Uh, uh, and so can you just take us through that journey? What is it that, what does it mean by low, low carb, high fat diet? And then I, I have a few follow up questions as well. <laughs> So, so my father died of type 2 diabetes, and it's very strong in our family. And so that I had the genes, but I didn't realize that I was prone to type 2 diabetes. And when I went look back and looked at some of my data where we'd measured glucose and insulin in me, when I was extremely fit, extremely lean, doing lots of training, I was clearly pre-diabetic. In fact, I was, you could call me diabetic in situ. I had diabetes. But the running sort of kept it at bay. But then as I started to run less and eat more carbs, because that's what we were telling everyone, eventually I developed type 2 diabetes and, uh, okay. and didn't, didn't obviously realize it. But then fortunately, I discovered the low carb. By the way, by the time I'm developing my diabetes, my running is getting much worse. I'm putting on weight and I'm not feeling good about myself at all. Okay. So then I've managed to read a book called uh, the, the New Atkins for the New You. And I read it because I was so angry that my friends could use the word Atkins because everyone in medicine knows Atkins tried to kill everyone by telling us <laughs> that you had fat. So I wondered how they could sell out to him. But when I read the book, within two hours of reading it, I said, oh, my gosh, you know, I got it wrong. I've been promoting this high-carbohydrate diet for 33 years. And whereas the high-carbohydrate diet might indeed be essential from, for Elliot Kipchoge, for 95% of the runners, it's not necessary. Okay. And, and that, that, we'll come back to that. There is a small group of athletes who perhaps can survive a high-carbohydrate diet, and, and maybe they need it to perform well. But for the majority of us, it's not necessary. And, and I think there's clear evidence for that. But if you're like me and you're what we call insulin-resistant, the high-carbohydrate diet is going to cause you to develop type 2 diabetes. And of course, okay. we were spending because we expend so much energy. We're burning. We're eating more carbohydrates, and so we were damaging ourselves more quickly. So anyway, I I stopped eating carbohydrates. I lost uh, enormous amounts of weight, and my running just went back twenty years. I went back from sixty to forty in the logbook. I was running as well as I had when I was forty, and so then then I eventually had to acknowledge it because people said, "Have you got cancer? You're looking so thin." So <laughs> I said, "No, I've just changed my diet." Well, you better tell everyone. So eventually I did, and then that caused me all sorts of problems. I know. <laughs> and you mentioned the real meal revolution. And in the real meal revolution, I said that insulin resistance is the key driver of much of the chronic ill health that humans experience today from cancer, dementia, type 2 diabetes, and so on. And you're not allowed to say that if you're a doctor. Because if you're a doctor, you meant to say, well, the reason you're sick is because you're not taking enough tablets. You're not taking enough of the anti-diabetic tablets or the anti-dementia tablets or whatever. And that's nonsense. But but that's that's the story. So I was immediately isolated by my university. And then the Health Professions Council, which to which I was registered, all South African doctors, you must be registered to this body. They accused me of unprofessional conduct for 
advising that this diet was good for children. And they said, well, it's going to kill millions of children around the world if you say it, you see, which of course is the opposite. Because this diet makes you healthy if you weaned on it. But so I went through three years in courts, in a court action again, with the Health Profession Council against me. And we had 20 day, 28 days in courts. Myself and three expert witnesses were in on the podium for 12 days, cross-examination, the whole shooting match. And we presented 7,000 pages of evidence. And the prosecutors presented one scientific paper. <laughs> one scientific paper. <laughs> and then, then I realized that science wasn't the issue. They weren't interested in the science. They were, there was something else driving it. Anyway, I won on all counts. There were 13 decisions. I won every single one of them. And I was, I was, I was declared innocent of all charges. And so that was, that was great. The irony is not a thing's changed in my country. The dietary advice is still the same as it was. And it's, it's harmful for many people. Before moving on, I wanted to request uh, all the listeners to please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. It will only take you a couple of minutes, but it will help the show enormously and help other listeners to discover the show. So please do take a couple of moments to go and leave a rating and review on either Apple Podcasts or iTunes. If you are using another app which allows you to leave a comment or a rating or review, like for example, CastBox, please do that either. We also request you to please check out the website runfitraj.com. And also, if you have any comments or suggestions, to please write to me directly at runningandfitnesswithraj at gmail.com. You can follow all podcast-related updates on Instagram at the handle runningandfitnesswithraj or on Facebook on the Facebook group Running and Fitness with Raj. Now, let's get back to the show. So, in, in adopting a low-carb, uh, high-fat diet, can you just give us some broad guidelines on how much carbs, how much... Uh, yeah. How, how I mean, how do you how do you mix 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 it up? Because obviously, I live in a country where, uh, in pretty much all parts of India, it just, only the nature of your carbohydrate intake varies. So, so where from in southern India, where I come from, it's more rice based, yeah. uh, and in northern India, it's more wheat based. But you know, carb, carbohydrate is very much a part and parcel of our diet, I, as I guess is in, in the case of many many cultures around the world. Yeah, I mean, in, in South Africa, for example, maize constitutes 40% of the calories that are eaten. So okay, absolutely right. And and people, you know, they they get unhappy when you start talking about this because it's an animal-based diet by and large. And it, you can be veget- full vegetarian eating a low-carbohydrate diet, but it's a little little more difficult. So the, the foods that I cut out, which are the cereals and grains, so I would have cut out the rice and the wheat, so they're kind of, stops us eating what the Indians are eating. And but and those are the cereals and grains and the vegetable oils. Those are the three things that have to go, and the sugar. What a lot of people are saying is, you know, it's actually not the low-carb diet that's being so helpful. It's actually stopping to eat ultra-processed foods. Okay. If you stop eating the ultra-processed foods, they get rid of the sugar, you get rid of all the refined carbohydrates, and you do very well. And so, the, and I mean, there are communities that do well eating high carbohydrate diets. We have to acknowledge that. But they don't eat sugar and they don't eat refined carbohydrates and they don't eat vegetable oils. And so, so this diet may work because it cuts the carbs. I think for us with insulin resistance, definitely that cutting the carbs is critical. 
But there may be people, like perhaps yourself, who are perfectly healthy, eating more carbohydrates. But then you, you'd be much, you'd be even healthier if you cut out the vegetable oils and you eat the non-refined carbohydrates. Those, those would be what you should be eating. Okay. So, so that's the move. And, you know, it's difficult for me to, to tell India that they must now become and start eating meat because that's not going to happen. <laughs> so I'm, I, I wouldn't want to say that, but. I think it's if you have insulin resistance, then it's a real issue and you do need to eat much more protein and much more fat and reduce the carbohydrates. Okay, got it. Okay. So uh, you have also sp spoken about the linkages between uh, diabetes and heart disease. And in that process, you know, there is this memorable line that you have said about lipid hypothesis, which is that it's the biggest mistake in modern medicine. Uh, so can you just take us through those uh, those points? Because uh, people talk about, uh, I mean, all over the world, even now, like, you know, this, you know, it's very prevalent. You measure your cholesterol, the various LDL, HDL, triglycerides. And if it is elevated above certain thresholds, you say that you are at risk of heart disease. But you have you have argued and you have shown that actually heart disease actually is an outcome of diabetes or what we just talked about in terms of um, low-carb, high-fat diet and things like that. So just take us through that, please. Sure. You know, this is not a new hypothesis, but it's one that got hidden. And it got hidden. And the first people to talk about it was a, a guy from, from Durban, South Africa, G.D. Campbell and Cleve. So Cleve and Campbell and Yadkin in the 1960s. And what they noticed was that heart disease rates start to rise in the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s in the United States of America. Let's focus on the United States. And the same in Britain. But what happened in Britain was in the 1800s, that's when they started refining carbohydrates. So refined carbohydrates started to get eaten in the 1800s. But sugar really enters the food chain in the late 1800s just 40 years before this heart disease rates rise. And so they said, well, we think carbohydrates are the problem, but it can't be refined carbohydrates, the wheat and the other forms of refined carbohydrates, because that happened far too long before the increase in heart disease rates in the 1920s. And the only thing is the sugar. The sugar starts to rise at the same time. And the other thing is that the vegetable oils start to rise. But meat consumption and fat consumption in the United States was actually going down slightly. So you okay. get a sudden rise in heart disease, but you can't link it to fat because the fat is going down. The only fat that's going up is the vegetable oil. So if you wanted to link it, you had to link it to vegetable oils and perhaps to sugar, which, but, or could be a combination of the two. So I then went and looked at all the history. And, and if you look at all the evidence, diabetes is always the strongest risk factor for heart disease. By far, okay. in every study, but they can't acknowledge it for the simple reason that the cholesterol hypothesis is so ingrained in medicine. And this treatment, there's the statin drugs, and the, the treatment of diabetes is a disaster until you change your diet. Nothing works. So you, you may take your insulin, but you're going to get sick anyway. So they took the focus away from diabetes and said it's cholesterol. So more recently, there's a paper out, in fact, in January this year, which looked at a group of 
professional women in the United States and followed them for 21 years. And they measured absolutely everything they could. Okay. And it was really remarkable because they started 30 years ago. And they measured things that we're only now looking at, APOB and lipoprotein, this and that and the other. And the conclusion at the end was that your risk of having a heart attack was tenfold greater if you had diabetes. Now, to give you an idea how big that risk is, if you're a smoker, your risk of a heart attack goes up twofold. Twofold. Oh, twice, okay. Twice. This is tenfold. And okay. Tenfold. This is five times greater than smoking. And they, secondly, they found cholesterol had no predictive value whatsoever. But the biological markers of my condition, insulin resistance, predicted absolutely. So that you can chuck away the cholesterol. You've just got to look at diabetes. And if you're not, if you're not diabetic, it doesn't matter that your cholesterol is through the roof. And that's been proven. There's a paper published this last week in Japan. The people, the Japanese with the highest cholesterol live the longest. And they have the, they've survived the longest. Whereas if you've got a low cholesterol, you die quickly. <laughs> so it's the, exact, it's the exact opposite. And, okay, the Japanese might be different and there might be something else. But what I think happens is that if you have type 2 diabetes, you actually have low cholesterol for some reason. And then, so it's not the low cholesterol that's causing you to die. It's the fact that it's a marker that you have diabetes. And this is just not just heart disease. It's all-cause mortality. In other words, all the causes. And we know that most of the causes of chronic disease are diabetes-driven. So if all-cause mortality is, is, is highest in those with low cholesterol, it's because they have diabetes. And the diabetes okay. is in the cholesterol, and that's the marker. So I have absolutely no, no hesitation now saying, you can chuck the cholesterol measurements out. You've just got to look at the diabetes. Now, why is that important? Because it's been announced recently that one in three Americans is diabetic, but they're yep. not diagnosed because they don't do the correct testing. So if you've got, because majority, about 60% of people with diabetes, it's hidden. And only when you do proper testing do you detect it. Like myself, I, I was diabetic inside you in, when I was 30, running marathons and everything, but the diabetes was there. But it only became diagnosable by current criteria when I was 60. But it was there for 30 years. If we'd used the proper criteria, I would have been diagnosed with diabetes in 30, at the age of 30, changed my diet, and it would never have progressed to full-on type 2 diabetes. So, so, so modern day, how do you, how, I mean, uh, what are the key markers or the key ways in which the diabetes is detected? You said 30 years back uh, they were not doing it, but no, now they are doing it. So uh, just for the listeners, can you just clarify what, that, what those are? Sure, sure. The, the key is that diabetes, the problem is not the glucose, it's the insulin. That's the first thing that goes wrong. And what happens is your glucose, your insulin rises because your body is becoming insulin resistant. And to get your blood glucose within the normal range, you have to over-secrete insulin. The insulin doesn't work very well, so you need a lot more of it in your bloodstream to drive the glucose. So every time you take carbohydrates, you over-secrete the insulin and so, therefore, you get too much insulin in the bloodstream, and that's the key. So, the test that we did on myself was we were running when we ate high-carbohydrates or high-fat diets. And when I ate the high-carbohydrate diet, my fasting glucose in the morning was six times normal. Six times normal. Six times the okay. safe value. And that's because I'd eaten lots of carbs the night before, and my body was still trying to store away this carbohydrate. So the first thing that goes wrong is your insulin in the morning rises and, and as you wake up in the morning. 
The second thing is that when you take carbohydrates, you'll notice that your insulin is too high. It goes too high and it takes too long to come back to normal. So those are the values. And, and the problem is you can have a completely normal glucose metabolism, apparently, because the insulin is compensating. So you, you have your glucose could be perfect. And mine was. Mine was way down when I had this massive insulin. So you looked at my glucose, you're brilliantly healthy. But the insulin was here, and that was the, that was the problem. And eventually your fasting glucose starts to rise as your fasting glu- insulin goes up as well. And then you see that then they say, oh, you see your fasting glucose is now elevated. But they missed the trick that the insulin has been rising for three, 30 years. So that's the first thing is get your fasting insulin measured. Then to, to have a two-hour glucose tolerance test where you take glucose and then you measure your glucose curve and you measure insulin curve. And if those are normal, you're fine. You're not diabetic in situ. But literally, there are very few people today who would be normal on those tests after age 30, say. Then okay. there's one more test, the glycated hemoglobin, HbA1c. I'll repeat that, the glycated hemoglobin, HbA1c. That starts to rise. So when you're really healthy, it's about 4.5%. When you're pre-diabetic, it goes up to 5.5. And then it, we only diagnose diabetes at 6.5, but that's too late. If you go above 5.5, you're already diabetic inside you. You're going to get the diabetes if you continue to eat the high-carbohydrate diet. Understood. Okay. So uh, in, in terms of, uh, in, I mean, I'm switching to um, uh, a race now. We had Bhat Yasso last week and, uh, you know, among all the races he has done, which is well over 1,000, he rates the Comrades Marathon as the single greatest race. And you, I know that you have also run Comrades. So just tell us a little bit uh, what's so special about it. Well, you know, if you're an American, they have a day where they have the Super Bowl, where they play football and the, the, between the two competitions, and that's the dominant sport. And they show it for the whole day. Well, the Comrades is the same. It's the dominant sport in South Africa. And for, it's shown for 11 hours on television. And so you get up at the morning, if you're watching, you get up at six o'clock and you're watching at five o'clock at night, you're still watching. Why, why it's so interesting is because, the, of course, the first part of the race is fantastic. It's who's going to win this race. And that takes five hours, 15 minutes before the, that's decided. Then you have a seven and a half hour cutoff. That's for the silver medal. And then you get the 11 hour cutoff. And this is filmed and it's shown. And the poor people, you can see them, they're told, you know, there's three minutes to go, two minutes to go, one minute to go, and then they start counting down. And always there's one person who misses it by a second. He's been <laughs> on the road or she's been on the road for a full 11 hours and they miss the cutoff by one second. And so the, I think, and then the, the support on the roads is unbelievable. Uh, it's, it just is South Africa at its very best when you, when you see the race. As far as running the race goes, I mean, you have to train really hard. To, to do it effectively, you have to train hard. And what I used to love was the, the hours that we'd go and run 40 miles in training and I would just get so high. I would be, that's, that's the reason I did it. I think, obviously, obviously I ran to love to run the comrades. But, and then when you, when you run the race, this is, it's a tough race. There are hills. You, you're always going uphill or downhill. There's no flatness. And, so and then it's it's just so beautiful that it, it, yeah, and there's so much support on the road and the runners are so supportive and there's you know there's twenty thousand people 
whose life will change on that day. Your life changes on that day. And yeah, so, and, and it's a, it's a very popular race for Indian runners. Uh, like literally, hundreds of Indians over the years have now the numbers. So India, India sends one of the largest uh, foreign contingents uh, nowadays. Of course, not in the last couple of years because of you know because of the right. pandemic. Yeah. So moving on, what are some of the areas of work that you are doing now, which you can share with the listeners? What's what's like, what's like inspiring you, and are there anything new yeah. that you are looking at? So I'm actually retired now, and I sort of got kicked out of my university. Okay. <laughs> and I lost all my funding, so I realized we'd have to raise funding elsewhere. So that's that's what we've done. We raised a large amount of money to study the effects of low-carbohydrate diets on your physiology and your glucose metabolism in athletes. And we showed the glucose metabolism is absolutely perfect. So you don't have to take your carbs to get to maintain your blood glucose concentrations. And that was that was some really good research. Then we looked into diabetes reversal on this diet and showed a group of people who had reversed their type 2 diabetes on this diet. And we were able to confirm that this was the case. Um, working with some Americans who did one of our courses, I'll come to that. And he's been running a clinic for, for people with metabolic diseases, including diabetes. And we were able to go back on his data over nine years and showed that he's reversing type 2 diabetes as well with this intervention and reversing all the features of chronic disease by combination of exercise, a lot of anaerobic weight training exercises, not just aerobics, and and also dietary change. We the, we formed the NOAKS Foundation, and our goal was to, to promote research into, into diabetes and diabetes reversal. We've got a large study, people using... Chronic, uh, chronic continuous glucose monitoring. And we, we go, they have a doctor advising them how to change their diet, or we just say, listen, why don't you just try this diet? And we're saying as soon as people see what their glucose is doing on this continuous glucose monitor, they become very motivated, and they suddenly see, I now understand why I can't eat too many carbohydrates. So that's a Not really interesting true. study because it's it shows that it is actually very easy to reverse type 2 diabetes. It's 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 as simple as falling off a log. It really is simple. Then we, we have a nutrition. And we realize that to convert the world, we have to convert the doctors. So we we have a program called Nutrition Network where we train doctors around the world. 80% of the doctors that we train are in the United States. So it's a, it's a global phenomenon. And we're producing the first textbook of low-carbohydrate diet for medical students and doctors and nutritionists. So those are some of the things that, that we're involved in. We're basically working on the low-carbohydrate diet because we really appreciate that it's, it's the crucial component. One of, one of my great friends who started the company called Verta Health, which in three years is going from, has gone from a company worth nothing to worth $3 billion. They are reversing diabetes. The goal is to reverse 100 million patients by the age of Wow, okay. Uh, He's just, they've just published a paper yesterday saying that every month the people on their program save $400, $400 from medical costs. So it's unbelievable. That's, that is powerful stuff. And they've got 90% of their patients get off insulin. And that's the saving. Once you're off insulin, your costs come shooting down. So, so you know, when I retired... In 2014, we didn't know this. We didn't know diabetes was reversible. We didn't know the cost savings that you could have. 
And so it's a very exciting time because finally, finally, the message of low carbohydrate and diabetes getting up. In fact, the American Diabetes Association, which has been profoundly anti the low carb diet. I mean, they've, they've done everything to try to squash it. A year ago, they said, no, it's very important part of the treatment of diabetes. It's Wow, okay. So, so that's what we're trying to drive there, the low-carb story, but particularly for the management of diabetes and other metabolic conditions. Got it. So it's really, really inspiring, and it's it's highly, highly relevant for India as well because India is fast uh, developing a reputation, if not already there, in terms of being the diabetes capital of the world, type 2 diabetes, right? And, you know, as I said, our diet, which is predominantly based in carb, which is rice or wheat, etc., and lifestyle and all of that. So I'm sure this is, you know, this is going to find its way all around the world. And like with most things path-breaking in science over centuries, as we have seen, obviously there will be resistance initially, but it's, I'm so glad to hear that, uh, you know, some of the, some of, some of the leading associations like the American Medical Association, sorry, the American Diabetic Association and all have come around. So, and what's the best way for listeners to follow you and your work these days? Uh, Noakes Foundation is one where I'm sure yeah. there is a, yeah, there is a lot of Noakes, material. The Noakes Foundation or the Nutrition Network, that, that covers pretty much some of the work that we do. Yeah, that's... Okay. Uh, yeah, that'll be and, and how active are you on uh, Twitter and other social media? I, I know, obviously, you have the social media handles, uh, and I, I normally include the social media handles the guests recommend in, in my show notes. So well, should I put your Twitter handle and all of that into that? Yes, please. It's at Prof Tim Noakes. I've, uh, yeah, I've got a very big following. Um, one of the most followed scientists, in, not in the world. Sure. But, uh, so Twitter is the best way to follow you other than the Noakes Foundation and the, and, and the Nutrition right. Network. Right. Yeah, okay, fantastic. Really, really appreciate you taking the time, Dr. Noakes. Uh, I think I'm getting close to an hour. I'm very mindful of your time. Uh, you have been one of the guests that we really, really wanted to speak to for a long time. So I'm really, uh, you know, really, really thankful that you took the time and uh, talked to us. Uh, I will put your uh, Noakes Foundation uh, links, uh, the donation links, all of that in my show notes, as well as my social media posts. So, uh, and thank you so much for all the work that you are doing for all of us. Thanks, Raj. It's always a great pleasure to speak to the Indian community. You know, I was... I was fortunate. Can I carry on? Yes, sure. So I was fortunate in 1996, the rugby, the Cricket World Cup. I was the medical doctor for the South African team, and it was held in Pakistan and India. And I just lived every moment that we were in India. I loved it. Oh, wow, okay. And the people were so good. And then finally, uh, if you read the book, The Law of Nutrition, you'll see that my primary person who saved my life was Dr. Ramdas, Dr. Rocky Ramdas, who is an oh, Indian okay. South African, and we were like that, and we are brothers. And and he would teach me about the Hindu religion, and he would say, Tim, Ganeshi will look after us. <laughs> the God <laughs> Ganeshi will look after us, and uh, and he did. He was right. We are. I just had the most incredible relationship with him, and and still do. So your your love for cricket is well known. In fact, what I didn't mention <laughs> at the start was that you have also published a book on Bob Bulmer among right. your many, many other books. So <laughs> just for the listeners yeah. that uh, yeah, Dr. Yeah. Noakes has also written a book on cricket. So yeah, Bob Bulmer in particular. So, Well, just a final comment that uh, some a group of 
entrepreneurs from Chennai came to South Africa, looked at our institute and said, we want to reproduce it. And they reproduced the sports science institute we had in Cape Town in Chennai, but in fact, on a much bigger scale. Wow, I was okay. there at the opening and someone asked me, so who's the greatest cricketer of all time, you see? And so I unwisely said Sir Donald Bradman and I was almost murdered on the site for not <laughs> saying Sachin Tendulkar. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, it's been wonderful, wonderful speaking to you. Thank you, Raj. Thank you very much to all the listeners. Please check out the podcast website, runfitraj.com. That is R-U-N-F-I-T-R-A-J.com. It has all the podcasts, it has all the show notes, and there is a very useful search function as well. You can reach out to me on my social media handles, which are Running and Fitness with Raj on both Instagram and Facebook. And you can also email me on runningandfitnesswithraj at gmail.com. Please let me know if you have any questions or specific guests you would like to see on the show. I also request you all again to please subscribe to the podcast and spread the word. Please also leave a review on iTunes as it will help enormously to grow the show. We will continue to bring you exciting and interesting guests and give specific and actionable advice. Stay safe, stay healthy and till the next show, goodbye. Goodbye.